Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello and welcome back. This is your thoracic team from Swedish Medical Center in Seattle with myself, Megan Lenahan, joined by the esteemed doctors Brian Louie hey. and Peter White. Hello. Today we will be talking about some recent advancements in the management of early stage adenocarcinoma of the lung. Dr. White in particular has been so excited for this episode. Dr. White, would you like to speak briefly about why you are so enthused? Thanks, Megan. So lung cancer continues to be the deadliest cancer in the United States by a huge margin. In fact, if you look at mortality and you add up the next three highest cancers, colon, breast, and prostate, it's higher than all three combined. Even for early stage disease, not only do we see that high mortality, but there's such a wide range of median survival. When you look at the non-small cell lung cancer five-year survival, it ranges from 68 to 92% just for stage one, and anywhere from 53 to 60% for stage two. While surgical resection remains the mainstay of treatment for early stage non-small cell lung cancer, the benefit of adjuvant therapy has been much more limited. Older trials such as the ANITA trial and JBR10 showed only modest improvements in survival, but more substantial advances in adjuvant therapy have been made just within the last few years. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss some of the exciting developments in targeted therapy by taking a deeper dive at the ADURA trial, and this evaluates osimertinib, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor targeted to the epidermal growth factor receptor, or EGFR, and its benefit for stage 1b to 3a patients with EGFR mutations. Then we'll present two new papers that use a 14-gene expression profile to identify early-stage patients who are likely to benefit from adjuvant cytotoxic chemotherapy. Before we dive into anything further, I want to mention that none of us have any financial disclosures or relationships related to today's discussion. Let's start with a brief overview. For the earlier trainees, Megan, how do we work up a lung mass, and when do we have concern for lung cancer? I would start with imaging to include a CT chest, followed by a PET CT scan, and for stage 2 or higher, a brain MRI. We prefer to have a tissue diagnosis through either transthoracic or transbronchial biopsy. For any stage 1B or higher, we would get pathologic mediastinal staging, either through endobronchial ultrasound or EBUS, or mediastinoscopy. Uh, but we're more selective for stage 1A. Then I'd get pulmonary function tests to evaluate for lung resection candidacy. The general goal is a post-resection FEV1 and DLCO greater than 40%. And of course, your physical exam, your pre-op labs, and your functional or performance status scores. What about those marginal patients at a less than 39% post-resectional FEV1 or DLCO? Any other studies to see if they are a candidate? Sure. I would evaluate their CT scan looking for significant lobar collapse in the affected lung that would artificially lower their predicted post-resection numbers. Then I would get a quantitative VQ perfusion scan to see the functional contribution of the lung to be resected. You could also use cardiopulmonary exercise testing to assess risk with a VO2 uh, max less 
than 15 milliliters per kilogram per minute predicting higher complication rate. Yeah, and don't forget, patients should also get bronchoscopy before resection if not previously done. Nicely done, Megan. We are currently using the eighth edition of the TNM classification for lung cancer. There is way more nuance than we can cover in this episode, but generally, T stages are based on size and N stages are based on the location of, uh, of the positive lymph nodes. N1 nodes are ipsilateral hyalur, and mediastinal N2 nodes uh, are N2, and N3 nodes are contralateral thoracic or supraclavicular nodes on either side. When we're talking about early stage in this podcast, we mean stage 1 and stage 2. That includes T3N0 or T2N1 or below. We are focusing on these early stage non-spouse lung cancers because these are generally resectable and patients undergo surgery up front. As surgeons, we will see these patients first and need to know how to counsel them. We are the first to review their pathology and often order the genetic testing. Under current guidelines, completely resected stage 1A disease isn't recommended to receive adjuvant therapy, as studies have demonstrated worse outcome for all comers. Stage 1B and 2A are more controversial, and adjuvant therapy is recommended for high-risk disease such as poorly differentiated tumors, vascular invasion, wedge resections, tumors greater than 4 centimeters, visceral pleural involvement, and unknown nodal status. All stage 2B cancers are recommended to undergo cytotoxic adjuvant therapy with the addition of radiation therapy for stage 3. Uh, and that brings up our first topic. If you pull up the current NCCN guidelines on non-small cell lung cancer, you'll see that recommended therapy for high-risk stage 1B and above includes and osimertinib for EGFR mutation-positive non-small cell lung cancers. This was a change from consider osimertinib that occurred this past March 2021. We're going to review why. Activating mutations in EGFR can drive development of adenocarcinoma. And EGFR mutation testing has been the standard in advanced malignancies with treatment with EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors has been used for many years. There have been a number of studies using earlier generation EGFR TKIs with early stage disease and mixed results, including the SELECT trial, the RADIANT trial, the EVIN trial, and the adjuvant slash CTONG1104 trial. We won't be covering any of those today, but if you're interested, you can look them up. Osimertinib is a third-generation EGFR TKI. One of the key improvements in it is its ability to cross the blood-brain barrier and show efficacy in the central nervous system. The FLORA trial compared osimertinib with earlier-generation EGFR TKIs in advanced stage disease, and it showed promising results with both a longer progression-free, and overall survival. Which sets us up for the ADORA trial. Published in the New England Journal of Medicine in October of 2020, this is a double-blinded phase three clinical trial that includes 682 patients with completely resected EGFR mutation positive stage 1B to 3A non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer. Though it included 1B, the primary endpoint was disease-free survival in stage 2 and 3A patients. Patients were randomized to osimertinib versus placebo daily for three years. A few things to note, patients were not mandated nor were they prohibited from receiving adjuvant chemotherapy, though radiation therapy was not allowed. 
The trial was unblinded to researchers two years earlier than planned because review showed dramatic benefit in the osimertinib arm. For the primary endpoint at two years follow-up, 90% of patients in the osimertinib arm were alive and disease-free compared to only 44% in the placebo group. The hazard ratio for disease recurrence or death was 0.17, or put another way, 83% reduction in risk of disease recurrence. When they expanded their analysis to the entire study population, so including the stage 1b patients, 89% in the osimertinib group were alive and disease-free at two years, whereas only 52% in the placebo group were. That's an 80% reduction in risk of disease recurrence or death. Osimertinib was relatively well-tolerated, but not without side effects. That included diarrhea, fingernail, and mouth inflammation. Thanks for that great overview, Megan. These results are excellent. And if you pull up the paper, you will see an early impressive separation on the Kaplan-Meier disease-free survival curves. This benefit holds up regardless of whether patients received chemotherapy or not, and the majority did. Of the patients who received chemotherapy, there was an 84% reduction in disease recurrence at two years with osimertinib. Of those who did not receive chemotherapy, there was a somewhat lower but still impressive 77% reduction with osimertinib. So osimertinib definitely does not replace chemotherapy, and there may be even some synergistic effects. It's also important to note that because osimertinib enters the brain, there was also a significant reduction in brain metastases with a hazard ratio of 0.18, which equated to a 1% CNS recurrence with osimertinib versus a 10% CNS recurrence with placebo. But there's always a catch. Peter, what are some of the issues that we need to know about this paper? Thanks, Brian. While these results are so promising, we do need to temper our enthusiasm just a little. First off, the endpoint in this study is disease-free survival at only two years, and not overall survival, which will of course take much longer to see the results. While promising, we don't know if we are merely delaying recurrence in these patients. We've been through that before with first-generation EGFR TKIs, erlotinib, and gefitinib, as well as the second-generation EGFR TKI, afatinib. They too had early significant disease-free survival, only to show no difference in overall survival with the development of EGFR-acquired resistances. But I'll give you that. The benefit seen with osimertinib is vast superior. With a hazard ratio of 0.17, it's really quite impressive. We also don't know what the appropriate duration of therapy is going to be especially given the concerns that EGFR inhibitors may only keep the disease at bay during treatment, followed by increased recurrence once they're stopped. Honestly, even if survival benefit doesn't pan out, if I had to choose where to recur, I would probably choose anywhere but the brain. So the CNS penetration of osimertinib is huge. We've learned at a minimum that the addition of osimertinib has impressive disease-free survival over chemotherapy alone, and has now become NCC and recommended standard therapy for high-risk stage 1B and above for those with an EGFR mutation. We'll be anxiously awaiting the overall survival results in a few years. It will also be interesting to see if they study this in stage 1A patients. I have heard some oncologists say they want to keep osimertinib in their back pocket, wait and use it should their patient develop a recurrence. It'll be interesting to learn if it's better to use it in that manner as opposed to giving it up front and potentially preventing those recurrences. It doesn't end there. The NeoAdura trial is currently accruing with a target end date of 2029, 
It is a randomized phase three trial looking at osimertinib with and without chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone in the neoadjuvant setting for completely resected stage two through three B disease. Moving on to our next topic, adjuvant chemotherapy and who should get it. There's not much of a question that stage 2B and 3A patients should get cisplatin-based doublet chemotherapy. There's solid evidence showing improved survival and decreased rates of recurrence. When you start to look at stage 1 and 2A, however, it is less clear. Current NCCN guidelines include indicators of higher risk, such as poorly differentiated tumors, vascular invasion, tumors greater than 4 centimeters, visceral pleural involvement, wedge resections, and unknown node status. Unfortunately, there isn't much evidence to back up those recommendations, and the guideline itself implies that the list is not exhaustive. It doesn't include genetics or histology of the tumor. Dr. White, what else can we use to determine which early-stage cancers may benefit from chemotherapy? Well, Megan, that's a great question, and it's something that a group at UCSF has tried to do in developing a PCR test for molecular risk stratification for stage 1 and 2A lung adenocarcinoma. So it analyzes 11 cancer-related genes plus three additional control genes and processes through an algorithm to classify tumors as low, intermediate, or high risk. It was originally developed on a cohort of 361 patients and then subsequently validated against over 1,400 patients spread across multiple institutions, uh, and even internationally uh, with a, a number of those patients in China. Most of you are probably familiar with genomic testing in early stage breast cancer to assess recurrence risk, and the concept is similar about whether or not chemotherapy would be indicated. The lung cancer molecular stratification better identifies patients at high risk of recurrence and better predicts survival compared to the standard TNM staging system alone. And there's good data out there for using it as an adjunct to TNM staging to better prognosticate. What it takes a step further are two recent papers that evaluate its use in the clinical decision about whether adding cisplatin doublet chemotherapy for intermediate or high-risk tumors in otherwise early-stage disease for which chemotherapy wouldn't be indicated. So, Megan, what's the first paper we'll discuss? It is from 2018 by Woodard et al. in Clinical Lung Cancer. It's a smaller study, but we'll, it will set the stage for our last paper. So this group prospectively followed 100 consecutive patients with stage 1A, 1B, and 2A non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer after complete surgical resection and pathologic staging. The tumor was then sent for this molecular profiling. They grouped intermediate and high-risk patients together as molecular high-risk and from there they evaluated disease-free survival. So by conventional 7th edition staging, 58% were stage 1A, 32% were 1B, and 10% were 2A. While a total of 36% qualified for chemotherapy based on NCCN guidelines, only 13% actually received chemo, and that was based on patient preferences and in joint decision-making with their oncologist. When these 100 tumors were run through the molecular gene assay, 52% were low risk, none of whom received adjuvant chemo, and 48 were high risk. As mentioned, 13 patients under, did undergo adjuvant chemotherapy. While it's a small study, the results were interesting. Of the 11 patients with recurrence, nearly all were in the molecular high risk group. That equated to 21% recurrence rate in the molecular high risk group, 
and only 2% recurrence in the low-risk group. This held up as a significant predictor of recurrence on multivariate analysis. What's even more interesting is that five-year disease-free survival for high-risk patients who did not receive chemotherapy was 48.7%, but this improved to 91.7% for those that did. Another point worth mentioning is that there were also 11 patients who are high-risk by NCCN guidelines, but then low-risk when run through the molecular gene assay. None of those patients received chemotherapy, and none of them had disease recurrence. We do need to keep in mind that this was a non-randomized cohort study with a relatively small sample size and a short median follow-up of 23 months. They also didn't take into account or really even mention other therapies such as immunotherapy or if these patients underwent EGFR testing. Well, that brings us to our final paper of this podcast, which is hot off the press. The same group just published again in clinical lung cancer in September of this year. Again, they looked at stage 1 to 2A adenocarcinoma. They followed 250 consecutive patients, um, first-time lung cancer without prior chemotherapy, and after complete resection, their tumors were sent again for this molecular assay. And 150 of them were also sent for next-generation sequencing, or NGS, to determine correlation with EGFR mutation. We should note that NGS testing was not done systematically in any way, but more based on demographic factors believed to be associated with EGFR mutations, such as for non-smokers and Asian women. Of these patients, 71% were stage 1A, 21% stage 1B, and only 8% stage 2A. Again, they grouped molecular intermediate and high risk together as molecular high risk, and that included 101 patients, or 40% of the total. Of that group, 33% received the platinum doublet chemotherapy. None of the molecular low-risk patients had chemotherapy, and the estimated five-year freedom from recurrence for the molecular low-risk patients was 94.6%, whereas for the molecular high-risk patients who were untreated, meaning they did not receive adjuvant chemotherapy, this fell to 72.4%. However, when you look at the molecular high-risk patients who did receive chemotherapy, that freedom from recurrence increased to 97%. So that comparison was 72.4% for those that did not, and increased to 97% that those that did receive chemotherapy. These disease-free survival curves paralleled freedom from recurrence curves. So this is an expansion of the data in the previous paper, really, and it shows similarly promising results. But how does the EGFR mutation testing factor in? By including analysis on patients with EGFR mutation testing, they aim to understand if this molecular genetic analysis and the risk stratification conferred by it was independent of EGFR mutation status. And that's what the results suggest. 38% of those tested with NGS had an EGFR mutation, and it was more common among molecular low-risk patients. There was no association in the study between EGFR mutation status and freedom from recurrence or disease-free survival. Among those with an EGFR mutation, molecular high risk continued to show an increased risk of disease recurrence, And with adjuvant chemotherapy, this risk risk decreased to become similar to low-risk patients. Similar results were seen among EGFR wild-type population. Just as before, 
This is a prospective cohort study with inherent co-founders of them. While more patients were included, it remained a relatively small sample size, and they really just added an additional 150 patients to their prior 100 patient cohort. The median follow-up was 29 months, and they were estimating five-year survival results based on that median follow-up. When you look at their graphs, as you look at the number at risk, it falls off very quickly in the first 30 months, with much fewer patients making it out to 60 months. And again, we're looking at disease-free survival and freedom from recurrence as our endpoints rather than overall survival. So while it supports their earlier trial, the patient population included the prior 100 patient cohort, so that's largely expected. While the results are quite promising, it may be too early in their follow-up to really make any final conclusions. And on that matter, Brian, you remember that other lung cancer gene assay? It was originally published in the New England Journal of Medicine about 15 years ago. Peter, you mean the one that was subsequently retracted? Yeah, I, it was published with tremendous fanfare, but their gene expression assay was created from a cohort of only 89 patients. And then it was validated against another 109 patients. Unfortunately, after attempting validation against larger ACASOG and CALGB patients, the results could not be reproduced and the article was retracted. I've asked around and it seems like the UCSF molecular assay is mainly known on the West Coast. Could that prior New England Journal of Medicine retraction have limited the national enthusiasm for another molecular assay? Well, I think it's likely it did limit enthusiasm. I think the underlying issue is that all of their publications thus far are retrospective or prospective cohort studies without a well-designed randomized control trial demonstrating at least improved disease-free survival, if not overall survival, it becomes much more difficult for an oncologist to recommend cytotoxic platinum-based chemotherapy to a stage 1 patient who's otherwise considered cured. And that's a great point, Brian. We can't get ahead of ourselves without the supporting data and why it's so important to design and recruit to randomize studies. There's currently an enrolling international trial called RAZOR, R-A-Z-O-R, to do just that with the goal of 1,050 patients to undergo the 14-gene prognostic assay. Low risk are observed, while intermediate and high risk are grouped into molecular high risk and then randomized to either observation or platinum-based doublet chemotherapy. Swedish here in Seattle is one of 46 international sites currently recruiting, and too bad, it'll just be another 10 years before we know the results. Hey, maybe that'll be another BTK podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So to wrap things up, what other advances should we be looking for in the world of lung cancer? There's a lot of promise for circulating tumor DNA, or ctDNA, in early detection, mutation identification, and monitoring. Yeah, and also we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the recent advancements in immunotherapy and lung cancer treatment with the Empower 10 and the Checkmate 9 LA studies recently published. For now, though, PDL1N is the important molecular uh, molecule to test for, and depending on how positive it stains, it can be targeted with a number of monoclonal antibodies to enhance the anti-tumor effects of endogenous T-cells. What I'd really love to see are the induction immunotherapy trials in resectable non-small cell lung cancer. Peter, that would be another whole BTK podcast. 
But along those lines, I also think we're going to see surrogate markers for induction studies such as major and complete pathologic response. When you remove the tumor and immediately evaluate for treatment response, it can, be, it can dramatically speed up the clinical trial process into a few years rather than a decade with traditional studies. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. As always, uh, an incredible learning experience. And until next time, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.